Welcome to the HR Room Podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR, where we talk to business leaders from around Ireland and share their advice on how to create the HR systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, simply visit www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the HR Room podcast. In response to last week's conversation on the podcast about the scope of the Work-Life Balance Bill, where we touched on the core elements of the upcoming legislation, including the updates on domestic violence leave, We're now doing a deep dive into the topic of domestic violence and the legislation surrounding it, as we know is an important and sensitive topic that many of you want to know more about. And in response to the feedback from last week too, we're also bringing back our very own Megan Power, HR consultant here at Inside HR. Thanks for joining us again, Megan. How are you? I'm good, Owen. Thanks for having me. Brilliant stuff. And as always, we're joined by our very own Mary Cullen, founder and managing director here at Inside HR. How are you, Mary? Great. Delighted to have you back again, Megan. Brilliant. So we'll jump right in. Um, so I suppose, Megan, we'll come to yourself first. Um, so I suppose, Megan, opening question really to kind of build on what we spoke about last week. What's coming with regards to the legislation on domestic violence? Can you talk us through some of the, the key updates? Yeah. So with the Work-Life Balance and Miscellaneous Provisions Act, which we covered kind of more in depth um, last week, a piece of that legislation is um, the right to leave um, for people who have or um, had experienced domestic violence. So um, as part of this legislation, they can avail of five days leave in any 12-month period. Um, And it can also be availed of of by an employee in order to assist a relevant person who is experienced or has experienced domestic violence in the past. So a relevant person as defined in the Act is your spouse or civil partner of the employee a cohabitant of the employee, a person with whom the employee is in is in an intimate relationship, a child of the employee who has not attained full age, or a person who, in relation to the employee, is a dependent person. So under the legislation, the minimum um, period that can be taken is one day. Um, so if an employee takes part of a day, it should be considered um, one day of leave. And I suppose the aim of the new leave is to give that person the chance to, I suppose, seek support. Um, so things like medical attention, counselling um, might be used for relocation, um, seek advice or assistance from like a victim services organisation, that type of thing. Brilliant stuff. And I know we kind of briefly mentioned this last week again, Megan, but I just want to make sure we have cover everything in this episode dedicated to it. Do you think there's any kind of gaps, possible blind spots in a new legislation? I know there was a couple of comments there around pay I think in the from some external experts isn't there yeah absolutely and I think it's it's yet to be determined um if if there's going to be a gap I think perhaps the most eagerly anticipated um piece about the domestic violence leave at the moment is the rate of pay which um although the act has been signed into law um the rate of pay is yet to be set by the minister um Charities like Women's Aid, I suppose, have identified what they what they deem to be a stark risk of not keeping it at a statutory full rate of pay um, for days missed, as you know, 
for those who are under coercive control can often, you know, be monitored to the extent of having pay slips looked at or, or bank accounts monitored. So any anomalies, any changes, um, you know, to payment would likely be picked up. Um, essentially, I suppose they feel, and I would tend to agree that any cap on pay outside of full pay is probably significantly likely to reduce the chance of someone um, coming forward to avail of it as there will be risks associated if they are under course of control. And, you know, it, it may arguably go against the inter introduction um, and the purpose of introducing domestic violence leave um, in the first place. So if you say like 70%, if it's capped at 70%, like our statutory sick pay, employers still do have a choice here. I suppose they could look not to cap it and offer a full rate of pay for the leave instead. Um, they can always choose to offer more days as well or perhaps sort, uh, support with flexible working practices to allow the person to seek help during working hours without the loss of pay. Um, do you know, in another case, um, you know, some might see the length of the leave to be a gap, as we do have other countries, Northern Ireland, for example, going ahead and offering 10 days leave. Um, so I suppose in the absence of that, charities are calling for full pay for the duration of the five days. 100% it will be interesting to see what happens there because obviously it is a such a core element of of the legislation uh, and something that really affects the, the victims of it. So definitely we'll, we'll await and see what happens there. Um, I suppose, Mary, coming to you then, when we talk about the the obligations of employers, the, the culture, everything they, everything an employer can do, I suppose, because Megan did rightfully mention there, there is a little bit of, I suppose, interpretation for what an employer can do. When it comes to policies, Mary, I suppose, what should a typical workplace policy on this cover, what's the kind of best in practice approach here for a policy? I think a, start, a good starting point is, you know, it, it should be in keeping with the way in which you write all your policies and procedures and follow the, the same style and format um, and make sure that the policy is actually meaningful um, because it's important that we're outlining clearly in those policies a clear commitment to treat domestic abuse seriously um, a clear definition of what domestic uh, abuse actually is and who it applies to. So you've got to remember also that while uh, the majority of the victims tend to be female, uh, it can also apply to men as well and men in same-sex relationships too. So it's important to think through carefully, well, who exactly does this apply to? Um, a statement always from the organisation that uh, this kind of behaviour will not be tolerated within the workplace itself and how the organisation would deal with any violence that might occur um, within the organisation itself. And, and although it's rare on uh, and Megan, uh, you know, there can be couple relationships or relationships that develop in the workplace and um, domestic violence or abuse may be prevalent in those relationships and, and if it's actually, if there are incidents in the workplace, you've got to be clear about how, how the organisation would go about dealing with that and linking it very clearly to the company's or the organisation's disciplinary pol uh, policy. Um, it's I suppose really important as well uh, to outline, well, 
who is the point of contact? Who's the first point of contact? Who are you asking people to actually approach? So if it's a manager, if it's HR, if it's a trade union representative, if it's somebody else in the organization who you might have trained in specialist roles, that should be very clearly outlined, you know, who should uh, people approach. And remember, this feeds back into what kind of training and awareness raising campaigns that you're doing. So you don't want somebody who's extremely vulnerable approaching a manager, for instance, who reacts badly or who gets overly involved, who becomes emotional, who may be alarmist, who wants to jump in and save or try and do something uh, beyond which they should be doing um, or worse, ignoring altogether and not taking the matter seriously at all. So you really want to be very, very clear about who are people to approach um, uh, and have that crystal clear within your policies. And remember, always in a policy, we would say this, you know, naming individuals can be helpful. But if a policy exists for a number of years, those individuals might leave. Um, and it's better generally to name the titles of, of in, in terms of the role itself, in terms of who people are to actually approach. Um, you would be outlining in that policy the importance of early intervention um, by way of the culture that you and your organization are, are trying to create um, and that obviously being a, a culture where people feel that it's safe to actually approach their employer and um, tell them or disclose something so sensitive, so confidential, so private. Um, you just want to be very clear about, about the kind of environment where such disclosures can and are likely to exist. In the ideal world, we all have those cultures already, um, but the reality may be a different thing depending on the, the business, the sector, the nature of the work, um, the kind of environment that you're in. Um, then you want to be looking at, you know, what are you actually offering? So if there's something like redeployment or relocation, and I guess that'll be for the larger uh, organizations or organizations that might have multiple uh, locations or premises or, or places where people can go. And again, remember, when we look at something like remote or hybrid working, it's really important that um, if you decide, for instance, that you're going fully remote, that there's some kind of consultation with people around that because it might not be safe for somebody to do that. Or it might be safe for somebody to do it, but you might need to give flexible hours so that people can work in a comfortable environment. So think it through. What are you offering? What's the nature of your business? If you're uh, in office, remote or hybrid, you want to be thinking about how that actually affects um, a, a person who's coming and disclosing this information and what you can actually offer them. Uh, if there's things like emergency accommodation on offer or links in with uh, organizations like Women's Aid or, or local uh, refuges, then that should be outlined as well. Um, 
confirmation around your training and your education and your awareness, the resources that you have available for employees that may be through an employee assistance program. Uh, It may be uh, through posters and and information that is displayed throughout your premises or that you provide in your handbooks or that's available for people in various locations. Uh, And then always when it comes to policies, the mechanisms to monitor and review that policy. And that's so important that uh, we're always saying, you know, you should be reviewing every policy at least annually and not leaving it for years to roll on and um, become outdated. So long winded answer own, but uh, I hope that kind of gave a a clear view of um, what should be in them. And Megan, your uh, the person who does a lot more writing of these policies than I do. Uh, if there's anything I left out, please jump in and, and let our listeners know. No, um, an in-depth, an in-depth answer indeed. Um, I don't think there's anything um, that you've missed off. I'll have to go back and listen and make sure <laughs> my policies have covered everything off because it was very, very in-depth, very in-depth. Yeah. I suppose, Mary, if you had a said listen to your employees, look at the legislation and just draft something up and get it out there. That would have been the wrong answer anyway. So it is important to go through through all those steps, 100%. So appreciate that. I suppose, Mary, again, when we're looking beyond just the policy itself, I know a conversation we had uh, about this this week, Mary, on the topic um, was around kind of domestic violence and performance, performance management, that kind of stuff. So I suppose many employers may not even consider domestic violence or something like that as an obvious factor in poor performance. It might be in some cases, because as we said, it's quite a prevalent thing. Any kind of advice in that regard, Mary, because that can be quite a tricky one, can't it? Yeah, Owen, and that is coming up in the questions that we've been asked by our clients. Um, You know, how do we distinguish between what might be a performance issue and something um, more difficult happening in a person's life? And as I would always say to our clients, and I'm sure Megan is the same and the rest of our HR services team would say too, you know, you can only act on the information that you have. Uh, You cannot force somebody to disclose to you that they're having um, these kind of difficulties in their personal life. that is voluntary. You may suspect that something something is happening to an individual based on uh, your observation of those people or that person. But, you know, it really is up to the individual to disclose. From an employer perspective uh, and a manager perspective, it's really about having a relationship with the employee where the employee feels that they can approach you and tell you about these problems before they escalate and become performance issues. Um, there is a balance to be struck always um, in terms of what's happening with an individual employee, whether that's from a mental health perspective, a physical health perspective, uh, a domestic situation perspective. There is always a balance between uh, getting a job done uh, the management entitlement to manage 
and someone's willingness to disclose what's happening for them at a personal level. Um, people will not disclose what's happening at a personal level unless it is safe to do so. And unless they're confident that the manager that they're speaking to um, will understand, be sympathetic and assist them. Um, and when I say a system, I don't mean to counsel them. That's not any manager's job and managers don't have that skill. It's really about pointing people in the right direction, signposting them towards assistance, whether that's through an EAP program or uh, through resources or information or help practical help in terms of the financial supports, the non-financial supports, the flexibility that you might have to offer. But it's not simple. And I think you would need specialist advice if somebody does disclose something like that to you um, around the, their performance. And it is something that you need to factor in. It's important that you're getting support and advice yourself as a manager or as a HR team, because it's not an everyday occurrence, um, but it does come up. And we do deal with these kind of issues here at Insight HR. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And we'll actually come back to in a moment around that kind of handling the disclosures and stuff. But Megan, I just wanted to come to yourself again, just because I suppose we're talking about domestic violence legislation in the sense that there is an update coming, the work-life balance bill is included in there. And I suppose what is covered in that new uh, bill is the domestic violence leave. And I suppose the core part, one of, the, few, one of the, the top headline items in any policy around domestic violence will be that domestic violence leave bit. Um, so I know it might sound like a simple question, Megan, but I, but I know it's not. Can you define domestic violence leave for us? What is it? But also, can you talk to us a little bit about why it might vary from, from person to person as well? Yeah, absolutely. And so I suppose, simply put, it's time off for those who have or are experiencing domestic violence. And I suppose, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the leave extends to employees um, to enable them to assist a relevant person who is experiencing or has experienced domestic violence. So the person who can avail of the leave might actually not be experiencing it themselves. Um, but needs to take the leave um, to support someone. Um, as I as I mentioned earlier, that list I mentioned earlier, um, and because of this, naturally, the reasons for the leave are largely going to depend on the individual circumstances. Um, and you'll see people possibly using the leave to try and exit an abusive situation. Um, they may use it to go speak to the guards a solicitor, um, a victim support service, um, use, you know, use the time to move out. And we see AIB and Bank of Ireland introducing policies that enable, um, you know, enable those moves as well. Um, and, and, and having the leave enables um, the person to do this, I suppose, whilst kind of under the guise of work, um, you know, it, and it offers them that protection. Um, and this is what we're hearing the domestic violence charities who are experts in, you know, they're the experts in this field. You know, that's what we're hearing them say. And all the more reason why that rate of pay, you know, staying at 100 percent is, is so important because that guise will certainly disappear um, if we're seeing a drop um, in pay and the person is, you know, their actions 
um, or their attempts to get help um, are uncovered, it could potentially lead to a deteriorating and worsening situation for that person. Um, but equally, um, it could also be used in, in slightly different circumstances. So, you know, we could see employees looking to avail of it where they're at the end, thankfully, um, of a situation where they've managed um, where they've managed to remove themselves and they may need time off to attend court hearings and, you know, things like that. So it will vary. Um, so it's it's not going to be possible to say you can use domestic violence leave for X, Y and Z. Um, and employers are going to need to kind of keep an open minded approach as a result. And what one person um, uses domestic violence leave may be different to another. Um, and I do think it's going to require trust um, and that open minded um, approach as well. You know, it's not something that someone's going to be able to produce a medical cert for in some cases, you know, or, or documentary evidence of. Um, but hopefully um, we would we would hope the times that we come across it are limited enough. But given the statistics, unfortunately, um, it is a bit all too prevalent in Ireland at the moment. Definitely. And I suppose, Mary, while we're talking about domestic violence leave there at the core of this, I suppose, Mary, to avail of the domestic violence leave, more often than not, you're going to have to report the, the issue, talk about domestic violence. So I suppose, Mary, are there any kind of particulars or advice about how you manage the reporting of that and when it comes to you, I suppose, disclosure and that kind of stuff? And maybe if I can just tag another question on the end of that about kind of what supports should we provide in those kind of situations? Yeah, I mean, I prefer to use language like mm. disclosure and disclose something rather than report. And that's not a criticism of you for for saying it in that way, own, because I think a lot of policies might fall into that territory where they're suggesting that you report and you have to think very carefully about your language um, overall in terms of how you're describing um, the supports that are available and in the policy itself. Um, I think when somebody uh, is disclosing something to a manager or any individual, I think there's some basic tips that would be helpful. Um, and it, I'm going to run through them now. There's probably more, and Megan again may well have more uh, based on her experience of, of addressing these kind of issues uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. But I think as a starting point, um, you know, in and, and I have to emphasise it again, nobody will disclose anything unless they feel safe and able to talk about issues in the workplace. So unless you have a culture that is open, uh, people won't disclose it. That's a starting point or may not disclose it until they're, you know, really deep into a disciplinary process or they're coming in to work because they've missed so much time and, and their manager has asked for a meeting with to discuss the time or they're late all the time or something like that. So generally what you want is that someone will come before those kind of um, behaviours arise within the workplace and they feel safe and able to do it in the in the first place. So that requires an openness on the on the manager's part and an openness in terms of the culture. Um, 
if somebody does come and speak to you, um, you know, make sure that you're speaking to them in a private space, which, you know, others can't overhear. And that may mean if you're in office that you're bringing somebody away from the hustle and bustle of the business. It may be going to a private meeting space. It may be going off site and having a cup of coffee with someone somewhere. Uh, if it's remote, it may, you know, you might well want to be checking that there's nobody else in the room and reassuring the individual that there's no one in the room with you as well. Um, you obviously need to listen and give time to the person to make sure that they're feeling heard. Um, your role, as I said earlier, is not to um, overreact or become too intrusive. Um, your job is to listen and reassure, not lead somebody down a particular path, not make suggestions around how they might resolve the issues directly with their partner or suggest something like counselling um, because it may not be safe for the individual to even do that. Um, and again, the job is to signpost them uh, towards appropriate help. Um, and again, I, I say it's important not to overreact, to keep the cool head um, and to listen to what somebody has to say rather than try and fix problem because uh, you don't have the skills as a manager, you don't necessarily have the skills, even if you're quite skilled at dealing with people in HR, this is a whole different area and an area that a lot of us just simply don't have experience in. Um, I suppose you always will come at an issue like this, a workplace issue like this, from a managerial commitment perspective, not a personal commitment to somebody. So anything that you're offering to do, you have your management hat on uh, and not your personal hat on, and that you're making sure that whatever you commit to is, is from the managerial perspective. And I say that because this, this is upsetting. This kind of a discussion can be disturbing um, and can be disturbing not just for the person who's come forward and had the bravery and the strength and the courage to come and speak to you, but also from your own perspective. And I know from talking to managers, I know from talking to HR people that when these issues arise in the workplace, they can really worry about an individual. And, and really feel quite upset about um, somebody's personal circumstances. And having appropriate supports, not just for the individual, but also for the managers or the people that might be that first point of contact is important too. They may well need support. They might need to speak to somebody uh, as part of the EAP provision or as part of um, the supports that the organization are offering generally. And then remember about confidentiality. Uh, you know, I know a lot of HR people shudder when we talk about GDPR. Uh, you know, certainly I've, I've shuddered a few times myself. But, you know, where are you going to store the information? Who is going to be told 
about something that's disclosed to a manager? What is the manager to do with that information? Um, these are really important uh, questions that organizations need to answer. And, you know, in some ways, that kind of information, which is so personal, so sensitive, uh, it has to be processed and handled uh, internally uh, in line with your data protection principles. Um, it's especially uh, important when you're dealing with extremely sensitive information like this. And I think it really does need to be considered as part of this policy. You know, once you promote a policy internally that you're supporting um, people in this way with a particular policy and encouraging people to come forward uh, if they need this kind of support. Um, it's really important that the questions have already been asked and answered internally before you ever go about publishing your policy. Um, and while the leave is a statutory entitlement for the individual, uh, all the rest of it is up to the individual organization uh, and probably the HR professional who's going to be putting together this particular document. These questions have to be asked and answered before ever you publish the policy. Again, another long-winded answer, Om, but I hope it's, um, it's helpful to our listeners. Yeah, no, 100% there is so much to it, but rightfully so in the sense that it is a, a huge important topic and, and highly sensitive. I suppose it's one of those topics that many employers might actually think is quite a, a personal issue that they don't have any obligations with. But as we know from this conversation, there's a lot to it from the employer perspective as well. So I suppose kind of last word to yourself then, Megan, I suppose in light of everything we've said there, I suppose any kind of last thoughts on how we can make sure an employer's response on this really is kind of fit for purpose and effective. I know we've gone through a lot, but anything to add or to kind of highlight? I think it's, it's more about like summarizing. We've covered off quite, we've covered off quite a bit. Um, you know, a company can choose when they're drafting a policy to just draft it, mirror the legislation and, and, and tick a box. But for it to be fit for purpose and effective, um, you know, as, as Mary has been touching on, you know, it needs to be embedded in the company culture. And there's actually a lot to do and a lot to answer um, before it's actually written down on paper and issued to staff. Um, and that is going to require effort on the part of the employer. There's there's no doubt about that. You know, I know we see, you know, bigger companies, banks, AIB, Bank of Ireland, I mentioned them earlier, with these substantial policies. But that doesn't mean that SMEs can't adopt their own policy with their own resources, reflective of their size and budget. Um, you know, not cap and pay, for example, or provide more days leave or just adopting flexible working practices could help substantially, you know, also resources like training staff on domestic violence, awareness um, and implementing well-being resources like an EAP um, can also help inform the policy and provide great benefits to staff. Um, you know, I'm certain no employer wants anyone on their staff to suffer um, in silence and without support. So a policy that is reflective of a culture of that culture can certainly lead to a happier and healthier workforce. 
hundred percent. I suppose that's the crux of everything we talked about. Mary, anything out there finally? Yeah, just one other point, um, just about the naming of the leave. You know, in HR, you might want to think, what what are we going to call this policy? Um, you know, a, a domestic violence policy or domestic abuse leave policy, you know, may have certain connotations and maybe you want to think about um, what you might call it or how you might build it into the rest of your policies. So I think there's a lot to consider, a lot to think about for for our listeners when it comes to to uh, this particular element of the legislation. Definitely and hopefully we've alleviated a lot of worries there and help with some certain bits but the good news is we're actually talking about this a lot more over the course of the month as well. We do have a webinar at the end of the month with Catherine O'Flynn from William Froy and Neve Murphy from Amber Women's Refuge here in Kilkenny on this topic if you'd like to join the webinar. We also have very excited actually to be speaking to Sarah Benson, CEO of Women's Aid on this podcast in a couple of weeks as well so if this is a topic that does interest you definitely keep an ear to the ground for for the for the additional stuff we do have coming up on this over the next couple of weeks and um, but look mary and megan thank you for a, a hugely insightful discussion again a lot to get through there but such an important discussion to have as it's something that i think we'll agree is not talked about hugely uh, from an employer perspective so i really do appreciate the the perspectives and the and the, the advice thank you everyone for listening so we'll catch you next week for the next installment of our podcast so don't forget to click subscribe and join the discussion on our social media channels and as always, for HR consultancy services and management you can trust, get in touch with us today at InsideHR.ie. Thank you, Mary, and thank you, Megan. Thank you, Owen and Megan. Thank you, guys. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Room podcast, the podcast series from Inside HR that helps you create the human resources systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, go to www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. That's www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe, like and share the show with any friends and colleagues who are looking for fresh ideas on how to create the ideal workplace for their business. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or an on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Thanks, and see you soon.